everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical Pico. A bit of history into this episode. In March 2003, the United States and the United Kingdom, alongside other allies such as Poland, Spain or Portugal, invaded Iraq with the pretext of decoupling Saddam Hussein because of an allegation that Iraq had developed weapons of mass destruction. The invasion was deemed illegal according to then Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, and was seen as a new phase of the global war against terror that the US launched after the 9-11 terrorist attacks against the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Saddam Hussein was overthrown in less than two months. By 2004, he was found. By 2005, he was trialed for crimes against humanity and executed by hanging in 2006. Saddam loyalists, Sunni Ba'athis, kept resisting and will be the initial court of the insurgency that will keep on fighting for the years to come. In May 2003, the head of the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq signs an order disbanding the Iraqi Army and Intelligence Services. We're talking about more than 300,000 well-armed men into the streets. The weapons of mass destruction were never found, although it was the main mantra repeated to justify the invasion, and by early 2004, the US government started acknowledging that they might have gotten misleading intelligence reports. A presidential commission concludes in March 2005 that not one bit of the pre-war intelligence on Iraqi weapons of mass destruction panned out. Since 2003, more than 1 million airmen, soldiers, sailors and marines served in the country. The cost of the conflict was really high, $800 billion for the US Department of Treasury, others say more than $1 trillion, with nearly 4,500 Americas and where over 100,000 Iraqis killed during the war. However, this number can increase up to 600,000 or even a million for the, because of the side effects of the invasion. In the turmoil that followed the invasion, Al-Qaeda, for example, started a massive bombing campaign, particularly against Shi'i places, sparking ethno-religious violence all over the country that reflected in the next other region until today. The number of Iraqis who died in the conflict is uncertain. Well, this has been a little bit of an introduction to what we want to talk about today. And here I have uh, Milos Langovic with me. How are you doing? Oh, good. Uh, thank you for inviting me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Always happy to have you. And obviously, Ronan Wordsworth, how are you doing, mate? Very good. Feeling fresh. Feeling fresh. Ready to produce a very good episode. You're really busy lately, so <laughs> <laughs> we were lucky to catch you. Um, as you may have imagined already, what we're going to talk about is the American invasion to Iraq. This happened in 2003, and ever since, the region itself has been in a, in a violent turmoil. The invasion proved to be successful in the first place. Saddam was decoupled, but the United States troops and Allied troops stayed in the country until 2011 and even further, training troops and, and police. But the situation of the country arguably didn't improve too much. Uh, there were many mistakes committed during the invasion. Even from the United States, voices pointing out that there was no real plan on to what to do with Iraq, that they were just improvising on the way. And in the end, withdrawing their troops entirely in 2011 with uh, Barack Obama, except for some training troops, alongside with, again, other international uh, actors. So we are in 2023 and last month it was the 20th anniversary of the, of the invasion. And ever since we've grown up. And the Middle East has changed a lot. And we would like to talk a little bit about it. So I would like to start this conversation by asking you guys a little bit. 
basically the invasion of Iraq is the is the top three first geopolitical big issues that we that we heard about in our lives. We were still kids, but obviously the ramifications and the and the impact in our societies was uh, at different levels, but it was important. So I would like to start by asking you, do you remember when it happened? And uh, even if you don't remember when it happened, do you remember what was the feeling of the population in your countries? Because let's not forget Milos is from uh, Montenegro, Ronan is from Australia, me myself, I'm from Spain, different backgrounds, different histories. So let's see, Milos, what was for you? <coughs> yeah, I would say I I was nine years old then, and I remember it kind of how to say. And for uh, our population's attitude towards the war was of course negative because just four years before invasion of Iraq, USA and allies also had a bombing campaign against Yugoslavia, which Montenegro was uh, part of back then. So again. People had, uh, I would say, some kind of empathy as well because we felt it on our skin. And also the prevailing prevailing uh, narrative was uh, quite basic one, I must admit. Everybody says uh, America is again uh, going to war for oil. They are imperialists and, you know, the usual stuff that are being said. How was Ronan? Yeah, well, for me, I think it, it was very much tied to the Afghanistan war in Australian mind because... That was one war two years earlier, which we sent troops to in support of U.S. goals and ambitions. And then just less than two years later, we were once again sending more troops to the Middle East, which for Australian perspective is a very long way away geopolitically. And I think people were not very happy at all about the invasion to start with in Australia They saw John Howard, our Prime Minister at the time, alongside Tony Blair and um, US President George Bush, obviously, standing up and telling the people that this was a legitimate war that we had to go and fight to prevent the propagation and stop Saddam Hussein with his weapons of mass destruction, which you touched upon before, which were obviously never found and came out years later, there was no credible evidence really in the lead-up to the war that ever existed. And I think the Australian population were just thinking, we're not America, why are we following American interests? This is not our war, we have no reason to be there. People didn't like Afghanistan, but it was much more popular than Iraq because there was a tangible threat that uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda had shown in Afghanistan and so there was actual actually a target here was Saddam Hussein the leader of a country and regime change is never pretty I think that's the thing Mm -hmm. like to go into another country and affect regime change is a huge step to take and and there's massive geopolitical ramifications for doing that and I mean I'm not trying to say that every person is fully aware of the implications but you just think to go into another country and we're Australia, we're not, we're not, we shouldn't be involved in the Middle East. I think that was the prevailing thought process behind it. So the, the, main, um, the main reason behind going uh, with the United States there was to decouple Saddam Hussein or was it uh, also the part of the war on terror, which we'll, we'll talk about later? Uh, was it put all in the same, in the same pack? Yeah, definitely it was put in the same pack uh, because 
it's more convenient, I think, to do that, especially to Australian population who probably didn't have a clue who Saddam Hussein was. Like, why are we going into the Middle East to, mm. to dismount a president or, that, you know, most Australians couldn't name, um, <laughs> quite frankly. Whereas, even though we hadn't had a terrorist attack, I think you can point to 9-11 and say, this is a Western country. Uh, we have a lot of cultural um, similarities, similarities yeah. with the United States. So and say, you okay, both have Fox News. We both have and Fox News. And it was news. a vivid picture of like terrorists. It was like direct threat. <laughs> exactly. It's, like a, they can, are, it's their fault. It's a that. face to the threat almost. Yeah. So it was a different thing, this. And then, so then I guess it's always been coupled with just the general war on terror, even though mm-hmm. it was obviously something different. Well, for me, um, in Spain, actually, we were, the government at the time was really, really into getting into Iraq. Like super into getting into Iraq, it was sold to us. Like we were partners at the same level with the United States, the United Kingdom, and Portugal in invading uh, Iraq because we were going for the sake of freedom, for the sake of democracy. For, for us, it was more. I would say more on the sense of like there is this dictator uh, which is terrible with his population, and potentially there's some ramifications with uh, terrorism and so. But we had our own. Internal terrorism in that time, mm. uh, at least in the popular, in, in the people, it wasn't that deep, uh, Al-Qaeda or, or, or similar groups. Obviously, 9-11 uh, was a thing, but we had our own internal stuff. But it was sold like we were saviors. And I remember the president going there and still years later, uh, when Bush already like retracting himself a little bit or whatever, our former president at the time, he kept on saying, yes, yes, of course, yeah, and we did thing. what we had to do <laughs> and going there. But I remember that the population wasn't in favor of that at all. And uh, in Madrid, there was this massive demonstration. Like I think it was like uh, one million people in the street. It was something crazy. Uh, one of the biggest ones, because I remember that uh, when the invasion started, there were several demonstrations all over the world. It happened mm. also in the United States and so on. The one in Madrid was massive. The one in London was also really big, I remember. So the population was never really to invade in Iraq. We didn't see the point of that. And actually, in that moment, we started feeling that there was a threat for us because we would put ourselves in the target from, in that moment, it was like maybe some Islamic terrorist group or maybe some some other problem. And actually, in 2004, in March 2004, we had a terrorist attack in Madrid. Yep. Which was the biggest in like mortality terrorist attack that we've ever had. And it was a shock. And the population was against being in Iraq. However, we stayed there so for a little longer. Just on that then, what do you think was the government's motivation for pushing it so hard? Because I think from an Australian perspective, it's kind of obvious what our motivations are. We like to see ourselves very close allies with the United States and UK. So we followed their instruction. Whereas Spain, although being Western allies, of course, they're much more integrated with Europe rather than being but a close US allies. So... <laughs> What, what was the government's motivations, do you think? Bob? That's precisely what you're saying now that Australia sees itself like a part with uh, the UK and, and, and the United States in the end, like civilizational-wise and everything. Like it's, it's pretty close. That was what the government in that moment wanted to. As the government in Poland, for example. Mm-hmm. Why did Poland invade alongside the United States? Because they were building their international limits after, uh, after the time in communism and then having the new democracy and so 
in a way that government wanted to have that international uh, build a status exactly they wanted to build the status internationally that's why it was sold to us so much that our president was there in a picture with Tony Blair and George Bush in the Azores Island it was really like until like, I started university I thought it was three, the like it was Spain <laughs> uh, the United Kingdom and the United States that invaded Iraq. You called all decisions. <laughs> Dude, exactly. And then you learn about it. And it's like, but you were the last ones in the queue. I mean, you did invade, but you literally were the last ones in the queue. But yes, that was uh, that was a problem. And actually, that particular government, that particular president, ran again for the or wanted to run again for the elections in 2004. But one week before the elections, or two weeks before the elections, this terrorist attack happened, and there was a cover up. That meant because basically, if it had been an Islamic uh, terrorist group who had put the attack, who had made the, the terrorist uh, attack, that meant that that government would be seen as guilty for bringing us to Iraq and bringing the threat back home. To exactly. Spain. Whereas if it was, which was, I mean, there were already uh, Islamist uh, <clears throat> radical threats to Spain because it's a historical territory, but they didn't properly like it was in the, as, in the beginning was, of it exactly it was not a acute threat that yes was... however uh, after 2004 happened that government fell because obviously it was related like as soon as there was as soon as they found a cassette that they were singing in in arabic that was done they got that government was done i do remember that actually even from australia yes. about the spanish elections and, <laughs> and straight after the terrorist attack as you said yeah that was really really big Okay, then uh, a little bit in like how we what we saw. Um, now let's talk a little bit more from uh, our experience with geopolitics and so. Mm. And um, I would like to talk a little bit about the regional geopolitical effects of the war. Just put it into perspective, as I was saying before. Well, Iraq was a country that was actually belligerent in in the region. Uh, in the eighties, they invaded uh, Iran. A little bit later, they invaded Kuwait. Mm -hmm. uh, They lost in Iran, and from Kuwait, a United States-led uh, Operation, Operation, Operation Desert Storm managed to liberate Kuwait, and actually went all over by that until Baghdad. But it is true that uh, Iraq, once the invasion took place, and once the, that uh, absolutist government fell, it went in shambles, and there were many, many groups there operating. And it became the battlefield for many problems in the Middle East. So what do you think, what would you say was the biggest geopolitical change that, not just the invasion, but the aftermath of the first year of the exactly. invasion think, happened? Because there's multiple different things. I think, first of all, we have to look at the makeup of the Middle East. First, we have to look at the makeup of the Middle East and the power dynamics there. So since the war... Iran became came much more to prominence. And then we ended up in sort of a Middle Eastern bipolar situation where we had Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran on the other. And a lot of the destabilization that's come about since then in the Middle East can almost be traced back to the Iraq war because they were a little bit of a... Obviously, as you said, they were belligerent towards some of the neighbors, but they kept some of the other countries in check in a way where... Mm -hmm. There was not just a bipolar order, you know, with the Saudis or with Iran. There was Iraq there as well as another very strong, powerful player. And it really meant that there was not as many of these proxy wars, which we've seen since. So we've seen Yemen, we've seen Syria, we've seen 
Iraq in itself. Iraq in itself <laughs> being, for the last 10 years, having uh, Saudi-backed and Iranian-backed forces there mm-hmm. and continued destabilization in the countries. And then secondary effect of that, I think, directly is that we've seen a bunch of insurgency groups because there's all these areas, there's weak governments across the country, especially in Iraq, but in some of these other countries where there's civil wars being fought. And then because of these weak governments, it gives rise to a lot of ungoverned space, a lot of areas where insurgency, a lot of black spots, a lot of places where insurgency groups can operate. So then these, again, I think can be somewhat traced back to the Iraq war because, okay, we had Al-Qaeda beforehand. We had the Taliban in charge of the Afghanistan, Afghani government for a long time. But the groups that came after them, we see like ISIS, we see the expansion of Al-Qaeda into Yemen, into other countries. We see the Syrian, 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 well, that's ISIS. The Syrian, and and I would add that because it was much easier for those non-government groups to rally around the flag because when you have direct invasion of foreign forces that are not familiar with your culture and I think it was easier for them to make uh, Islamist, extreme Islamist group because then you have you have foreign invader which is different religion and they are coming to your house uh, killing your uh, civilians and it was much easier in addition to that that people lived in much worse situation during the war mm-hmm. so for them the, the only way out was to join some of these Islamist groups and as we saw I think uh, Iraqi war led directly to the creation of Islamic State and to broader and broader tensions in the region. Actually, in that sense, it's interesting because I remember back in the day, like when 9-11 happened and so like it was like, uh, like the lion when it's uh, at its weakest is the most dangerous or something like that. I think that's how the saying goes, like uh, because they hit the United States, the United States was going to come in full force and, and it was going to put everything. But with perspective... I feel like the invasion of Afghanistan opened the Pandora box in the Middle East because there were tensions before. Mm. I mean, it's not saying the Middle East was not peaceful again. Um, there were many issues. Uh, Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, Yemen, Iran, Iraq. Okay, there's many issues, but this, <laughs> but this, but this, Middle East has never but really these uncontrollable insurgencies that came out from that, like... There was no insurgency in the 90s that could take over like one third of, of Iraq and one, and one third of, uh, of Syria and hold it. And the uh, territory with the most oil resources as well. We shouldn't forget that. Like, I would agree in the 90s it was unimaginable that some uh, Islamist terrorist group could uh, have a grip on oil production in the region. So, mm-hmm. And do you think... Um, because I've been reading and we've been checking some stuff lately that's how the invasion of Iraq actually like the, the main enemy in the, from the United States like since the 80s there was, was Saudi Arabia um, sorry Saudi Arabia Iran mm. and in 2001 the, the American led intervention takes the Taliban out of power which are Sunni and competitors to, to Iran and in 2003 2004 they take Saddam Hussein out of the out of the table, and so Iran can start expanding its proxy, its proxy warfare and its interventions in its indirect interventions in other countries. Do you think that it actually helped them? Definitely. I mean, I think if we look at Iran since they 
they developed, that's when they started developing their nuclear weapons program. They have more of a justification for that to their local population saying America is the real enemy. They look what they did to our neighbors, <laughs> even though they're not friendly neighbors. It doesn't really matter. I think it's, like just it's a Middle Eastern country. Like yeah. if, we, if we don't, if we don't pursue the, See what happened to Saddam, that next, happened because yeah. he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Exactly. That won't happen to us if we have. Exactly. Uh, and it's it kind of true, I would admit, because if you look at the American foreign policy after Iraq, like I said, it just opened Pandora box. After that, we had Libya and then we had Syria. So, hmm. it was just the beginning of... The, this war had also much bigger geopolitical, not only regional mm-hmm. impact, because... After all this, I think this led the American interventions in the Middle East. It led also Russia and China to be more involved in the region. Because if USA can invade and protect their interests, what is uh, stopping then Russia to protect Bashar al-Assad or China to make deals with Iran and things like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just one more thing on that. I think it's important to separate Afghanistan war and and the Iraqi war, even though it's very easily to it's very easy to group them together because it's obviously both american and allied forces fighting in the middle east against different groups and there was regime change in both instances but one was against a defined target that was a legitimate threat which was obviously al qaeda in afghanistan and one was against the leader of a country which was saddam hussein in iraq so i think the goals were different and then because of that i think we look at the outcomes from the wars and they were quite different where once regime change was achieved in iraq they didn't really know what to do from there <laughs> however i want to i totally agree with you that they are different and even afghanistan i would say that is at least more justifiable than iraq because iraq is based in a lie iraq is based mm-hmm. in the lie that saddam hussein has weapons of mass destruction where there were no weapons of mass destruction and that there uh, was evidence, and there was no evidence. And then there was evidence, and within a year, there's no evidence. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I still have, I actually, uh, having a conversation regarding this topic not la- not that long ago, I-, I think that after time, if you see George Bush, I genuinely think that that guy thought that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Because literally, the guy looks like, I fucked up. Like, he's got this face of, like, <laughs> I fucked up. <laughs> And he's got this face of I fucked up until he loses the elections in 2008, since 2006, 2007. When it's clear that there is no justification to continue the war, they don't know what they are doing. Again, they keep on changing alliances with locals. Mm, the situation doesn't get better. The government it gets worse. And it gets worse. And then they leave with uh, Obama and it gets... It gets nothing. We it are gets to nothing. Point, it like. gets... Like now, um, now Iraq is a country like with, where Baghdad... Is reconstructed. Uh, it goes more or less fine. The levels of terrorism in uh, certain areas, controlled areas of Iraq, have have uh, have lowered clearly. But in northern Iraq, you have uh, the Islamic State until 2017-2018 active, and you need the Kurds to help you out getting rid of of ISIS. And there's still those tribal. Problems. Mm. There's still those ethnic or ethno-religious mm. problems. I mean, one reality of all these dictators, and you can point at Saddam, or you can point at Gaddafi, or you can point at any of these, is like, for as terrible as they were, 
There are some reasons why they ruled. Like there were that. some reasons why they got into power in the first place, and it's because they managed to maintain some sort of balance between some stability, the some stability within the within the country, which is true. Then. I mean, Libya was a much more successful country before intervention <laughs> yes, under Gaddafi. Like, again, Gaddafi, uh, uh, kind of a brutal uh, dictator. A brutal dictator, yes. But of the course. quality of life under a brutal dictator is probably better than what's come since. Like, That's the sad reality of the of the case. At least there was a state back in exactly. The, like now, arguably, Libya doesn't have a state. And yeah, and like I said, also with now the situation in Iraq, the intervention enabled Iran to have even bigger influence now in Iraq. Mm-hmm. We could say that now. Iran has more influence than USA in Iraq. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. But this invasion in USA is hmm. strengthened their biggest enemy in the region. Yes, and in mm-hmm. the end, the governments in Iraq were Shiite, uh, were, uh, were Shia, so it was like, I, honestly, like it's a, it was a, a mess. It was a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. In summary. Yes. That's a, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that could be the summary. A forward summary. It was a mess. Okay. <laughs> I want to, I want to go a little bit into, into this part of like, uh, invading a country. Okay. Uh, now, uh, Russia last year invaded the Ukraine, as we all know. And it's an illegal action under international law. Uh, it's totally despicable, in my opinion. It's the invasion of sovereignty of, uh, of a neighboring state against their will and killing civilians and so on. What did George Bush say about it? Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Well, okay, now we have George Bush. <laughs> okay. We've seen this video before. I mean, this lapsus where he says, uh, there's like this, that no one person could decide to invade a country like Iraq. Sorry, Oops. Ukraine. And, <laughs> then, and then just afterwards, he says, well, Iraq too. Yeah. And you can take that, well, Iraq too, two options. One of them is like, well, obviously you cannot invade Iraq now because it's a sovereign state. Or, I mean, he was the leader he himself, the he literally was saying, I did. I did. I did. And, and it's, I made a mistake. And I made a mistake and it's fucked up. Like, you are not going to accept that you did a mistake. And that's one of the things that I want to come here. Invasions by other states to, to like the order, the post World War II order of 1945 based in sovereignty of states and, uh, and the secrecy of territorial integrity. This we can see after 1945 that, well, it's great in the UN Charter, but, uh, there's been interventions, uh, especially from bigger countries, from great powers. And in this sense, there's one question that I would like to pose and then we can talk about like potential similarities or whatever. But now that the West is back in Ukraine in what I think is a legit, legitimate backing of a democratic government against an invasion. But clearly the West doesn't have that support from many places in the world because what they feel is like, well, but you did this and you a did that standard. many more du- times. A double standard. Basically. It's a double standard. Like, don't you it's think? It's claim double standard. We say I don't. It's a claim double standard, but with Iraq, for example, we can call it a double standard. Well, I would just like to say, yeah, my my opinion of that is that it's not a double standard in the same sense. I think Iraq was wrong 
but again, like we separate Iraq and Afghanistan, we have to separate Iraq from the war in Ukraine. I think mm-hmm. the war in, Af- in Iraq was not America trying to take the territory and make it an American state, whereas in in Ukraine, that's exactly what Russia is trying to do. So I think fundamentally there's some differences. I think that there's there's no good justification for the Iraq war, but there's still some underlying differences to the current situation in Ukraine. I think it, and the problem is, like by by these actions, the West does definitely lose legitimacy in third party countries' eyes, because it's very easy to point to these occasions and say, look, you intervened here, you did this, and. The only the only option is to say yes, we did, we did do that. It, it it was wrong. That's where my question goes. Like, do you think, in order for like from now on to have a legitimacy in, because we see the system post for nineteen forty five eroding in in certain ways, we're probably coming to a multipolar world where there's uh, different actors with regional power that before they were not that conceivable because the United States or before the Soviet Union, like they were overpowering everyone do you think that the west should actually acknowledge certain certain messes that they did in the past so that they could get legitimacy in their actions i don't think because i i think if they even if they yeah i agree it was wrong of course what they did but i think if they're accept their mistake and then they will maybe even lose even more legitimacy however this crazy sounds but like if somebody from third world country says oh you see they admit that they attack us without reason without legitimacy why would uh, listen to them that they are being serious about defending ukraine and some other people you see they are looking only of their own interests so mm-hmm. maybe i think it's for the west better to keep their position of like moral superiority or something like that because they still have soft power means to 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 make other countries at least some countries in the western world believe them that they're still still uh, the most important uh, global actor that has some right to do it but like i said i think it's it's uh, for me it's hypocritical to support this much not to to accuse other countries of doing the same thing Mm-hmm. that you did many more times so there is no no easy answer for the western countries to to this question i understand what you say and there we enter in the great power politics and we enter in this uh we enter in something that is more than the hard power which is what you were mentioning the soft power mm-hmm. and it's also how you frame uh, what you do yeah and when the united states led this invasion they framed it as weapons of mass destruction whatever like Pretty they weren't strike and they weren't condemned right. by the unga for example or by the UNSC, for example. Unlike Ukraine. They didn't want it. Like France, Germany, and Russia said, no, this is not right. But And China, no, this is not right. But no one went and said, like, we're going to impose sanctions. The US has the most soft power in in the world. By far. So so they can get that veneer of legitimacy, maybe, from having this soft power. And as you said, it's also about how you frame it, for sure. Because by saying that you've got weapons of mass destruction... Again, it lends some credibility to a threat and a regional threat. But, yeah, the goals are the thing that also dictates. And I think, once again, well, it's it's hard to determine exactly what the U.S. goals were besides regime change. 
Like where they, they say like oil, they say... They have basic fan, but it's not the only one. Exactly. I would put it's a close oil, oil, it's easy. Oil, oil and internal, exactly. and internal oil. validity. validity and then like, I can we've been attacked, we need to like, react. Exactly. Like, so they're just firing off into the Middle East. Yeah, so it's it's even, like we said, you need a face to put on the thread. So mm. Saddam was probably the, the best, next pick, best pick at the point. Because they weren't getting Osama bin Laden anytime soon. Because, because they couldn't find him. A lot of caves in Afghanistan. So, exactly. So then... As you say, then it's another internal projection to try and to try and win support yeah. for and the then, government. But I would say also, which is important, that Iraqi war, I think, was the first crack in or first blemish on American soft power since the fall of since they are the unipolar power. Because yeah. before that, they had also interventions in the nineties. There was some resistance to them, but not as nearly as Iraq, at least in the like, late mm-hmm. phase of Iraq war. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I think the next uh, American operations in the region, such as Libya and Syria, I think had even more backlash initially than Iraqi war. And I guess were more constrained by that internal... By, by their public as well. By their I internal, mean, yeah. internal support for, the, mm-hmm. for more intervention in the Middle East. The appetite just wasn't there to go back mm-hmm. to the Middle East, to Syria mm-hmm. or Libya. So we saw much smaller American yeah. forces deployed in those countries for a much shorter yeah, like time. In, in Libya, there was no foot, uh, feet on the ground. Exactly. So. No, and actually, and, and even they were supporting, well, like, yeah. but in Libya, who ended up uh, uh, bombing Gaddafi was France with Italy. Yeah. So it's uh, but so it shifted uh, definitely shifted American foreign policy in the Middle East without a doubt. I would say. To this point, that where we are now, that we don't know if they are still be here or they are leaving. Or That's interesting. Now, okay, then let's let's fast forward into the into today, more or less, or like the last two years. Ever since uh, the invasion, then we had the Syrian civil war. Uh, we had the fight against ISIS, uh, massive numbers of terrorist attacks and uh, deaths and wounded there. But now we're in 2023, and suddenly the there's we can always count on three. On, well, since the since the Arab Spring of 2011, we can count on four regional powers: Turkey, mm-hmm. Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Because Egypt was a it's a historical regional power, but it lost its track. Uh, and they are kind of in the middle of all. And right now, say. Egypt is kind of Egypt is being colonized by this. By colonized, but, it's been uh, moved around by these regional, by these other regional and powers. And right so. now, they've got no real ability to project power. Mm. They've got their own too much internal struggles to deal Precisely. with. I think to be considered. Precisely. So, what, what the thing is that is. So we had this cold war that we mentioned between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, Turkey uh, came as a regional power after 2005, 2007, blah, blah, blah. And it started being more present in the region. It shifted eastwards. <clears throat> and there was this, like they were, again, supporting other groups. We leave Israel out of the table because Israel is its own world. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2023, we have a rapprochement between Turkey and Egypt which had close embassies in uh, 10 years ago. A rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Which is the biggest surprise. Like, which is the biggest surprise. Nobody saw that coming. And, and, the, the, and, and it's going the, faster than... Because exactly I think the speed the of the... Really, the, the, the speed of the thing, opened embassies. And it's so fast. Like one month ago when they firstly met in, in Beijing, 
the analysis were like, ah, okay, yes, really nice words, but then how do you put this into practice? I don't know how will they put it into practice well, already, because they're yeah, supporting we, different groups. No, but we've like seen in three different countries they have proxy wars. Exactly, but we've seen right now in Yemen, just over the weekend, we had um, an Omani, an Omani-led dialogue discussions between Saudi Arabian officials and the Houthi rebels, which mm-hmm. hold the seat in Yemen's capital, Sana, mm-hmm. by kicking out the, the Saudi-backed government. And the Houthi rebels were backed by Iran. And there's no way that this discussions would have been held even a month ago until this uh, rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So already we're seeing like some sort of potential end to the Yemeni civil war, which was the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world for the Mm -hmm. last decade. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have eight years of continuous war. Brutal war. Saudi bombing. Houthis, Houthis killing, uh, attacking across the border into Saudi and getting their weapons from Iran. So... This already is having tangible, we're seeing tangible shifts in the Middle East mm-hmm. right now as a result of the Saudi-Iranian. And let's go into that because we were talking about the, the American image, how it got, uh, how it got deteriorated because of uh, Iraq. Also, they've left Afghanistan uh, one year and a half ago. Even in Syria, they have less troops. Even in Syria, they have less troops and... The situation when when the Americans started leaving was still the same. There was still this competition. But then you have two particular uh, situations that, in my opinion, have changed it. One is COVID, because those countries are closed, especially because of trade. Trade is shut down. Saudi Arabia also cannot get that much money. Iran gets in a lot of financial trouble. And then the Russian invasion to Ukraine, where suddenly Iran cannot rely on, on Russia, for example, to keep on providing weapons. And it's Iran who's providing weapons to Russia. Mm. Uh, at the same time, you have the Soviets that like they keep on fighting everywhere, but they've been detaching from the United States and they're going not... I wouldn't say... I don't like to say closer to China because I don't see the Soviets being closer, like no, no, allies to China so. as it was in the back in the day with the United States. I, I don't think so. I think they're doing their own thing. But they're I doing their own thing. Yeah. Like you said, COVID and all, because... Since 2003, there's just wars and turmoil in the region and Saudis, which have obviously money. I think they need stability to to build their project. As you know, they have megalomanic uh, construction projects all around. uh, Because I think... In Jeddah, like literally all over, all over the country. And I think well, they, they have need, two. They have one that is they a have massive... That, uh, they have that line. Like the line, yes, yeah, the line. The 170 kilometers or something. I think yeah. it's called the wall. That's called the line. It, the, the line. line. The line. 170 kilometer city in wall. desert. In, in a in, desert, And yes. for that, like I said, they need stability. And with turmoil in domestic US policy, they don't know if they can rely. First, Biden uh, was... Uh, harsh on uh, Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Khashoggi, but then he visited as well Saudi Arabia. And I think Saudi Arabia is trying now more to go to the economic prosperity. And for that, I think their natural partner in that would obviously be China, which is <clears throat> mostly looking at their foreign policy, at least in the countries that are not in China's uh, immediate uh, surroundings, to just project economic power, not like mm-hmm. hard military power. And it's logical, as for China, which tries to have good relations both with Iran and Saudi Arabia. And I see the reason why they want to make peace between them, because, like I said, it's bad for business if you have war. It's bad for business, exactly. 
But Maybe I think I don't like I said I'm a bit skeptical. If it's good I, of for course, the, obviously it will not be peace, but it's good signs these these reapproachments. Mm. I would say. Yeah, I mean we could finish 2023 with a with a calm Middle East, relatively calm. Mm. But, I believe I'm see except, it. Except, <laughs> except except let's see. Uh, what happens with Israel? That's uh, that's maybe for another episode. Mm, but the trend is to cooperation more than earlier this year. Iran accused Saudi Arabia of using drones to build uh, uh, defense facilities, like drone making facilities yes. in Iran, mm-hmm. in Tehran. And now we have them in Beijing. The Iranian government has announced that the Saudi government has invited the, the, the president to come to Saudi Arabia and that they will go. It's a massive change. Like it's, it's literally, or at least the Seismic beginning shift. of a game changer. And, and I see the disappearance of the United States from the table. They're supporting hardcore, uh, like hardcore supporting Saudi Arabia being also like, how Saudi Arabia is seeing itself in the world, how Iran is seeing itself in the world, like but they can more or less control still politically through soft power the Middle East because they have the capacity, although Iran is in an economic crisis and like with internal uh, turmoil, but still having a less demanding foreign policy could allow the regime to focus on Fixing the domestic issues. Mm-hmm. but Fixing the domestic yeah, issues. <laughs> if you want to put it like that. If you want to put it like that. <laughs> but I think it's interesting, 20 years on now from the Iraq war, that uh, the US now is almost their, their, their strongest ally in the region, Israel, is now the main focus of a, almost a united Middle East mm-hmm. as being the main perpetrator and main um, violent actor that they want to act against. So and we've almost come full circle now, where like, the Middle East is, is again, the, the US again. Like these wars, I would say, benefited mostly Israel. Like divide and conquer for them was the name of the game. But now with this reapproachment, I think they are kind of the biggest loser in the region because, like They're I said, surrounded. now if Iran has good uh, relation with Saudi Arabia, they could focus all their power, how to say, to the <coughs> their biggest enemy, Israel. So. And if they if they settle some sort of permanent ceasefire in Yemen, and there's also talks that Saudi Arabia may reopen its embassy in um, in uh, Damascus, and they've been fueling the insurgency against Bashar al-Assad since the beginning. Two major major conflicts in the Middle East may be set for ceasefire. Like it's a. Uh, it would be a big, big shift. And I think the biggest winner of this all is, I mean, the regional, those two regional entities, like they're clearly winning in that sense. Or at least it's my opinion. When you have, as you were mentioning, Milos, when you have a more peaceful neighbor, business is better. And then there enters China, which settles his position as an international mediator in one of the most comple- complex conflicts of the, of the century. Every single accord has been signed in Beijing. China is brokering these accords. And it was kind of done in secrecy. Like like we said, mm. nobody saw this coming this quickly. And to be at least started to be implemented this quickly, I think it's also like a big diplomatic win for China. And it's also gave opportunities for other Middle Eastern countries to do similar. Because before this, you had only one sheriff in town to say like that. You had only USA and you can only go through them. 
then since war in Syria we see that Russia is willing to defend some of the rulers there if mm-hmm. it's in their interest and we see China that is ready to broker deals that of course is beneficial for them because they are because investing they, in Middle East like they're they investing need anywhere. They need to put the BRI through somewhere. And then again for those Middle Eastern countries I think maybe they are finally getting tired of war. Although like I said I don't think it will be peace but at least for now I think it could be bit more peaceful yeah and but as you said like i think the u.s definitely was the only sheriff to turn to before and their reputation in the middle east was ruined by the iraq war that's one of the lasting legacies yes of that war is that nobody really trusted them to be the peace broker even though they were doing it maybe for for good aims to try and prevent the retreat even the retreat was like not in the best condition. Messy. Like the, yes, it was messy too. So it was, it was messy and now we see that the Taliban has regained power and <laughs> and basically have done everything that they said that they wouldn't do. <laughs> we've gone to square one without Saddam. And we're back to square one without Saddam. But everybody again forgot about Taliban because of war in Ukraine. So, so what they, they seized the opportunity. Mm. Now do we go to George Bush the third and Go back. I the guess goes back to continue the tradition. There's a George Bush. No, there is. There is rather. There is George the third one, but he will never be. That would be. That would be. Yeah. There will no be trilogy in Iraq. I want to. I want to finish then with one question. And this ideology, this ideology that was basically developed in the United States of neocons that were basically pushing for these interventions, where the United States and the West had to go to other countries and to export democracy or capitalism, because basically, I mean, the first people that entered there were the companies later. Of course. Um, do you think, because of what we're talking, the United States image damaged everything, do you think these interventions are set to an end? Because right now, what we're seeing is a United States that is more engaged into defending certain territories that are of their interest. So we can have Taiwan or we can have uh, Ukraine, for example. But we don't have... We don't, they don't we, export we are not. We are not in the moment where they say we need to export democracy to this country or this other country or we need to intervene in this other country. Um, maybe because, again, they are not the unipolar power anymore. They are not the police of the, of the world anymore. They can't financially because it's a massive burden for the American... Uh, I mean, they could, but... But it's still... It, so in my opinion, mm. I don't think it's a death of that at all. I think the, it's a death maybe of interventionism militarily in the same way that we saw in Iraq 20 years ago. I don't think that they would be willing to stomach such doing such a thing again. But we definitely see them trying to export democracy, in my opinion, by the way that they engage economically with countries. Yes. They engage economically with the proviso that there were, that certain democratic standards are met. We see the way that the IMF and the World Bank operate is often they get, give bailout under the conditions that certain democratic standards are met. And so I think, no, it's not the end of the neoconservative interventionist situation, but it's definitely changed from one that was militarily um, focused in Iraq to one that's much more economically focused now and other soft power and political tools as well. It's not just economically, but also they're much more interested in dialogue, in bringing actors together. Mm -hmm. I think because... Iraq war was so unpopular domestically 
they can't afford to do that okay, again. They can. They, financially, I they, think they can easily. They, they're still the strongest military in the world by a fair way. They still could intervene in countries if they wanted to. They but can reject also, power like no other country. But they're also China. Well, China's the only other country that's close in power, military strength, and, and they, they cannot never, project. They don't power. have historical they've precedent got, for that at and, all. And, and, and they have got no way to get out of the South China Sea, which we might talk about on a later episode. So they're very different. I think the US still has mm-hmm. that ability, but they will not use it yeah, in the foreseeable future. I would add also, I but this. China entering the Middle East, I think, is also threatening the American economic power because we saw last week, was it, that yes. uh, the oil in Beijing, France bought oil in nuance from Saudi Arabia and Beijing markets. And also Saudi, Saudi cut, cut to half the production of oil. Because of OPEC and Russia. Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. see, this like Middle East is still important. Yes, yes, of course. And not only militarily, but as you see, it could make a dent in uh, global use of dollar. I'm not saying the dollar will fall anytime soon, but still this is like... It, for me, it was unimaginable just last year to say that Saudi Arabia will sell oil in other currencies than dollar. Like, absolutely. Yeah. That's like, absolutely. Nobody yeah. could see that. So That's true. As you say, it's still, still early, the predominant like, common currency for a long time to come. Yeah, but, but still it's like, it's like a, I said... It's a start big to, shift, a, big shift in my to alternative options for countries... For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, this has been our impression and comments on 20 years onto the invasion of, uh, of Iraq. The geopolitical ramifications. The geopolitical ramifications, lasting impact. Uh, if you have any comments, we would happily hear them and we will happily have a chat with you. And uh, this has been a new episode of the Geopolitical Pickle. It's taken Thank a bit. I'm sorry, it's taken a bit to come, but uh, we thank you so much. And uh, there'll be more li- episodes soon. There'll, there'll be more episodes rest soon. Assured. We would like to we would like to remind you that uh, now we are releasing our explained, where we explain uh, conflicts in an easy way in ten minutes that you can take on your coffee, and they're all over uh, or Facebook. Any geopolitical issue, not not only conflicts, but any geopolitical issue. Uh, geopolitical issues, exactly. Uh, with they are released uh, weekly or bi-weekly on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. See you next time. Ciao, ciao. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Like, share, subscribe. The Geopolitical Pickle is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz, two geopolitical studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at The Geopolitical Pickle or Twitter at The Geopickle for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.